0: Welcome back to the Build Podcast. I'm Blake Bartlett, a partner at OpenView. We're here to help software founders and operators identify and unpack sustainable growth strategies in the ever-changing world of SaaS. Today, we hear from Jurgen Spangle, Chief Experience Officer at Atlassian. Jurgen has been a leader at Atlassian for almost 10 years. He was the longtime head of design and more recently joined the C-suite to oversee all aspects of the customer journey and experience. In today's episode, we unpack Atlassian's company principles and values and how they influence everything at the company. This includes how Atlassian approaches meetings. Specifically, we dive into two of Jürgen's favorite meeting formats, journey mapping and Sparring all that and more in this episode of Build. So let's dive in with Jürgen Spengel. Well, Jürgen, thank you for joining us here on the Build podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So I want to start first with Atlassian culture and what drives the company. So my knowledge of the business is that Atlassian is a company driven by its values. So I'm wondering... Are there specific values that stand out to you as being your, your personal favorite?
1: Yeah. So values at Atlassian are very important. And it's probably one of the few companies where you where you feel them every day. And when I think about our values, it's like we have five. Be the change you seek, open company, no bullshit, build with heart and balance, play as a team, and don't fuck the customer. They are all very powerful. And you ask me for kind of like, do I have a favorite? It's like, One or two probably resonate more with me, kind of like just purely my personality or or where I'm coming from. And those two are open company, no bullshit, and be the change you seek. But the interesting thing about those values is they are beautiful as a system. And you always use them as as a system and, and together. And what we have learned over the time is that when folks use only one of them to make a point, then it's very often actually used as a weapon. And I'll I'll give you an example. We are an incredibly open company. So our intranet, which are only like our uh, our on confluence, which we call hello, pretty much everything is open and everyone can comment on things. And sometimes someone writes a blog post and then you get a reply, hey, so with the motto of open company, no bullshit. Let me just download all the things what I don't think is good about this blog post or about this page. And then it's mostly used as a let's say a justification of why someone can just kind of like critique someone heavily. But this completely forgets about the other value, play as a team or build with heart and balance to balance this off and put this into context. And I think this systemic approach and playing multiple of those values makes them so powerful and so strong. And and helps us as a company continuously evolve our culture.
0: And how does the system of values influence how you thought about building the design practice at Atlassian specifically?
1: It's similar probably. So it's back in the days now, I'm now almost 10 years with this Atlassian. In week two, I believe, when I started, and back then we had, I don't know, six, eight designers. In week two, I told my previous boss kind of like, hey, I think I need to bring the team together kind of like for a workshop because we are lacking like kind of like design principles or kind of like a, a design language. And he back then asked me, hey, hey, it's like, take it easy. They're like Don't push it that hard. And this was one of those things kind of like of, no, you just take it. Like be the change you seek and you push it forward. And then we pushed something out very quickly. So this, I'd say kind of like this drive from kind of like of establishing the team got manifested very early on. Another one is I generally invite people to challenge Pretty much everything what i say and and i I invite them hey this is my thought currently but please ask the hard questions and it's something what i it's kind of like it's very like you feel it in my leadership team and then i think it permeates out kind of like to the larger team and this again is built on hey open company no bullshit like i'm generally a plant person i invite you to kind of like also challenge myself and others
0: so you spent a lot of years, as you just mentioned, building the design practice and thinking about design at Atlassian. But now you're thinking about something new, which is customer experience as the chief experience officer. So what does CX mean at Atlassian?
1: Yeah, it was an interesting next step, kind of like like we over the years we established the design practice and had a, a big impact across the company, kind of like this bringing a shared language across our products. Then we, we repainted the company, kind of like and how how this all hangs together. But the next step that we wanted to take is when we think about experience, it's about all the interactions, the sum of all the interactions customers have with us. This starts from marketing, sales, community, to our products, in support, with our partners. And my team's job is to help us continuously improve those experiences and have them harmonious across Atlassian. Because the the challenge what you have as a as a scaling organization is that you have more and more people and teams interacting with the customers and the users. But from their perspective, they still expect one experience or a similar experience no matter who they talk with. And that's what we wanted to take as this next step of how how can we craft those, I deliberately call them harmonious over over consistent, those harmonious experiences end-to-end at any given time?
0: So owning all of the customer touch points and all of the customer's experience, that singular experience that somebody in the shoes of a prospect or a customer has, that's a lot. And there's a lot of different touch points. There's a lot of different than teams and, and folks that you need to, to work with and collaborate with. So I'm wondering you know how do you, with all of that you know differences h- how do you manage and tackle collaboration and cross functional work? Yes,
1: and it's so the whole let's say customer experience cX is something that's evolving and there are multiple different flavors out there and when i I look kind of like the the teams I have in in my organization, I deliberately pick those ones to to help us mature in this space and so I have research and insights in my team, and they help us to understand our customers, understand their context and and then pass it on to our teams and, and help them make better decisions. So that's one part. The other part is they also help us monitor how we are doing. Are we actually, like are our customers getting more satisfied? The next pillar what I have is future of work, which is all about looking forward. What trends out there? What do we learn from our customers? What do we learn from academia? What do we learn from other companies, from sports teams? Like how do teams work, because that's that's very close to our mission, unleashing the potential of every team. So we need to understand where teams are going and, and how this is changing. The next pillar is programs and practices. So we actually moved program management over from engineering into my area. And it's, I'd say, an unusual move, but I I think a very bold and forward-looking move. And the reason why we did this was because we wanted to help the organization to Start at the very beginning, understanding the customers, coming up with concepts, exploring, and then making those things, and then all the way to the impact. And usually, when you have program management, and the largest part is actually kind of like, is in this make phase, working with the engineers and executing on all those things. And the important thing is there's actually more to it, and it's the before and after, which is also important. So that was one part. The other one was, especially with the practice group, we, we as an organization need to continuously change and improve our DNA, how we do those things. And having the program managers and the practice folks embedded all over the, over the teams help us change and improve kind of like how we operate as an organization. And then the, the fourth pillar I have in my team is, kind of like grew up with that Atlas is all of design, product design, service design, content design. And we just recently brought them all together under the umbrella of experience design to kind of like get more accountability of crafting those end-to-end journeys. One interesting thing probably about Blake, and I'll, I'll, I'll come to kind of like how do you work with, with kind of like the cross-functional teams in a second is when we looked into how do we craft the CXO organization, I looked a lot and, and kind of like, of, hey, how are CTOs organized? Is it fairly similar to, to a CTO function? And it, it is in most parts or kind of a like chief design officer function. But one ahas what I had when we crafted this role was there's actually also quite some overlap with a chief financial officer role. And it's this accounting part of how is the experience going? And we can actually learn a lot from the financial world how the model kind of like forecasting from a revenue perspective. How can we help teams make better decisions of what impact their initiatives would have from an experience perspective. And it's something where we are very early on, but which I'm very excited about. How do you connect our customers to our financial systems? And how can you help teams not just build business cases from a financial perspective, but also build, I call it, initiative cases from an experience impact perspective?
0: Well, that's interesting. I, I think that that brings up a point that I've certainly seen in real life, which is when people talk about experience, a lot of times they think about the user experience in the product. And that is incredibly important. But there are so many things that touch their experience with your company, you know, like you mentioned with finance. And you know, the billing experience is a component of the customer experience. If you have great ux in the in the product, but then, the billing experience and, and actually paying for it is a nightmare. It affects your overall perspective of working with that vendor.
1: Yes, correctly. And this is, that's probably also one of the hardest challenges of working across all those teams and disciplines. And it doesn't matter how you organize your company, there's always so many people kind of like involved in delivering something to your customers and users. And it's like, I, I see there's a chop of, of my team of, helping us connecting those dots, designing for journeys and not just moments. As you said, kind of like, it's not just kind of like, hey, the UI and the product experience needs to be good. Yes, of course, it needs to be good. But sometimes it might actually be better to improve the documentation or the, I don't know, the onboarding in the product or the marketing messaging kind of like might promise too much and then you can't deliver it in the product. So how can we balance this out? And sometimes this might actually be more cost-effective to deliver than always just changing the product. Yeah, it's our job bringing those teams together or visualizing to them what it means from a customer's perspective so that each one of them understands better the relationship between all of those things.
0: So a lot of that is the the case for cross-functional work. And I know cross-functional teams and cross-functional work is certainly a, a popular topic these days that a lot of people are attracted to because they see those benefits. However, there also are challenges. And so I'm curious, kind of what are some of the challenges you see with, with cross-functional work? And, and how do you manage those challenges? Do you have any frameworks or, or pro tips from your own experience?
1: It's not easy. <laughs> when you do it, it's super valuable. And, and kind of like because it's you you get so many different perspectives, like just bringing a field ops person who is out there with the teams kind of like closer to the product teams and allowing them to have the exchange. And even finding out who you need to talk to is, is one of the challenges. One of the interesting things though is there's also the downside of if you try to push this too far, then you have so many people involved in every meeting or in every session. And it becomes harder and harder who actually makes the decision on what. And there are a couple of kind of like I'd say plays patterns tricks kind of like what we are now started to use more kind of like in and when, when we collaborate with them across the organization and one is when we have meeting sessions or or like I'm quite a lot kind of like in product leadership meetings or in my leadership meetings where where folks come in and, and they share something and they either want our feedback or a decision is made. Actually typing what kind of session it is and Usually the, the ones which we go with, it's, it's either an info session where you share something and it's mostly for helping others to understand better. So it's about clarifying questions and you invite folks in. Or a decision session where you come in and you lay out either multiple options, but you need to be very clear on who is the decision maker and in what way is this person making the decision. Is it a decision by voting? Is it a decision by this person gets all the input in and then makes a call based on the input. And what we learned is that the clearer we are up about those things, the, the better the, the session comes and the more people feel involved because the roles and responsibilities are clearer. And then the, the last type of, of, of meeting and session we have, how to, how to bring folks together is what we call sparring, which is very often you share a raw idea and then you just, if you invite people to help you make the idea better and also be... Brutal, like you invite them to be, hey, no, tell me why it's not working from your perspective. Be deliberately kind of like the person who, who kind of like pushes a bit harder and or be deliberately the person who constantly kind of like builds on top of kind of like, and and I know that's usually kind of like very often in critique, kind of like you see that like, yeah, I use the term and instead of but the beauty is actually in both and, and you need both of them, but it's again coming back to how cross-functional teams collaborate. Being specific of what type of session it is helps people put in a frame of mind and also gives them more comfort that they're here for their unique opinion, for their unique viewpoint, what they have. And this helped us a lot, kind of like of facilitating those cross-functional sessions.
0: Yeah, I really like that concept because I think a lot of times, you know, most meetings have an agenda but the agenda is, here are the topics we're going to talk about, and then you just jump straight into the meeting. What you're talking about here is is changing the concept of an agenda to not be a table of contents, but all the way at the very beginning, what kind of meeting is this? And that sort of sets the expectations, that sort of gets people into the right mindset for what are we trying to accomplish in this session? What is my role in this session? And then you can Participate accordingly, because I think a lot of times everybody comes in with a different expectation as to what this meeting is, and then that leads to the chaos that ensues, especially if it's cross-functional. Then, yes,
1: and one thing what we started introducing over the last few years is we actually now at the top of and we usually like we we, we borrowed this from Amazon with their six pages. We now actually very often start our meetings kind of like with, with reading some some Confluence pages. We actually at the top of the of the meeting we say, "Can read." Kind of like, this information session will be successful if, and then have two, three bullets in there to be very clear what we are after. And I, I, I give you an example. Yesterday we had a session with the product leadership team where my team came in and it was about what should be our satisfaction goal. How fast should we be there? And Lisa, one of my players kind of like set up the session. Well, this information would be successful if PLT has a shared understanding of all the drivers and influences of satisfaction. If product leadership team agrees to the goal and the time frame we want to reach this goal. And the third one was if product leadership team agrees to engage with us in a plan to create a plan how we can reach this goal. And then there was the whole content of the page and then, and then we had a whole debate about it. And this helped the team also constantly have in mind, okay, what, what is the person who set up the meeting What do they need to make this meeting successful? And this avoids kind of like sometimes kind of like meetings go off track or kind of like derailed or someone keeps on talking about that and things, bringing it always back to those things.
0: Yeah, the alignment is key on what kind of meeting is it and what would make this meeting successful and what are we driving towards. It's amazing how, again, like you said, that's simple, but it's really hard to do. <laughs> and it's really easy to do in one meeting, but it's really hard to do across all meetings across your entire org. And so it really does become this discipline and this thing you need to, to stay focused on. You mentioned a couple of the the types of meetings and sort of being clear upfront on, on what those are. Two of them that I wanted to unpack one you referenced, which was sparring, and the other one was journey mapping. And so curious to kind of know what these look like in real life. So maybe if we start with journey mapping, what is journey mapping? Journey mapping is kind of like multiple
1: things. And it's very often it gets used to map out an end-to-end journey. So it's basically a map. Uh, like that's why it's called journey mapping, where you visualize all the different interactions a customer or user has with us. So, in its in simplest way, it's kind of like, let's say, a purchasing flow. They somehow get aware of, or they somehow realize they need something in a certain area, like a certain product. Then they become aware of what different products are around there. And then they start researching this. So, they go to your website, to other websites. When they go deeper, kind of like try to understand this, then they might like want to find out pricing information. At a certain point, they make a purchasing decision and then the onboarding to the product. So that's kind of like it's like a journey map across, let's say, a, a purchasing experience. Very often this is used to get the team on the same page and expose what's actually going on, and it helps to explore, to connect, and help us kind of like identify where should we focus on, how is satisfaction across those things. Like also you can it overlay it with metrics. So this is this is the I'd say mostly the creative or design part about journey maps. And we actually have a couple of templates up on our playbook which is which we externalized to so there's kind of a couple of templates how you facilitate this and how you how you do those things. That's one part of journey mapping. What we started doing over the last probably one, one and a half years we actually use journey mapping as as showcases. We call them end-to-end showcases, and it's less than mapping. It's more the walkthrough of how does it feel from a customer's perspective to go through those journeys. And we started doing them also on a very senior level for our most important journeys, which are aligned to our company objectives. And, oh man, this had an impact. Like this, (laughs) this helped us on the one hand side as a catalyst, kind of like to get the team kind of like, oh, we need to present this to, to senior leadership. On the other hand, it got us as senior leaders way closer to our customers, and we understood where it's where the experience is good, where is it not so good? It helped us to figure out what is actually our shared understanding of what quality aspects what we have. And this helps us on the one hand side stay close to the experience our customers go through, on the other hand, be more aligned of. What direction do we set as next steps? And so I now started thinking kind of like as of it as, as two components. One, the, the creative part of creating those journeys and the other one, the showcase part. And we, 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 we now do them on a regular basis on basically across the company. It's again, it's, it's almost a new type of a kind of like of meeting type What I explained earlier on. It's kind of like the showcase type where you go in there and you just share back how those journeys look like from our customer's perspective.
0: I like that idea because you know I think on a customer facing team you could have folks talking about the customer journey or on a product team they could be talking about you know a specific flow that a user would go through and 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 that being a journey but you're pointing to the idea that you, you can do journey mapping across all different types of teams and and problem sets all the way up to the to the most senior executive groups within a company and and so it's it's this powerful type of meeting that Shouldn't just be isolated to one team occasionally, but should be, you know, entertained kind of, you know, really across the board. Yes.
1: Yeah, so we currently, we built this, like, we try to get it in our, like in our own playbook, in our TNA and and, and teams, the, the more often they do, the, the the better we become, the more we refine the machinery and logistics. Because again, as soon as you go cross product, cross discipline, cross function, it gets harder, but those things then help us do this and facilitate this. and. I think the most important thing is like every company talks about you want to be customer focused and it's customer focused, but it takes effort bringing the customer in. And it's not just kind of like a bit of a vox pop here and a big vox pop there or reading some comments. Seeing them actually going through those journeys is incredibly powerful.
0: So shifting gears to the other meeting type, which was sparring, and you alluded to it before, but curious to know, you know, what is sparring? When do you do it? And what does it look like in real life? Yeah, so sparring is
1: very similar kind of like to design critique, but you can do it broader. You can do it not just for designs. Our engineers now use also sparring. Our PMs use sparring. Pretty much everyone in the company can use sparring for whatever it is. So so what is it? So it's it's basically you you come with a concept, an idea, a proposal, and you invite others to help you make it better. And this can be in the form of You add to it, you try to punch holes into it, like you you just it's like you as a as a person who goes to the sparring, you deliberately invite others to hit it as hard as possible so that it becomes stronger and the idea becomes stronger, or you realize, hey, it's actually not a viable idea, and we might need to kind of like focus on something else. And what we learned over time is kind of like of how do we do this in the in, in the best way so that it's not all like sparring sometimes can be brutal because it's like when you bring something in there, you put your, your sweat and blood behind it and you have a certain level of conviction and you need to have a certain level of conviction that this is the right path forward. And then you ask others to kind of like make it better. But very often this means that they highlight things where it doesn't work that well. So this is something what as an individual... You need to learn to be, get comfortable with this because you know that when you go through this, the end result is better. Even so, you might end up somewhere completely different than where you started. We started doing this like in the like when I started it. So this was one of the other things kind of like, well, they introduced very early on, kind of like when I started at Atlassian. And it started all in design, but by now it's used pretty much across the company. Yeah, which is one of those things. It's It's great to see that we that we invite more openly people for, for feedback and shaping better products and experiences.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned the presenter psychology, which I, I could imagine, you know, on the one hand, when you think about the idea of, you know, people helping make your idea better, that sounds great. But then you actually get into the room and it starts to feel, at least it could feel like criticism and you might be sort of inclined to, to be defensive. So how do you kind of mentally prepare for it to where you get the most out of it Versus just coming out feeling bad.
1: <laughs> it's a, a good one. So one, there's the mental part of the presenter, which I think just comes, comes with time and potentially at the beginning, you, you go to other sparrings where you actually have a feedback giver. And what, what we learned to do is being a bit more structured of how, how we do this. And uh, again, we documented this in our playbook is you ask the people kind of like first just write down things on it or kind of, I like guess, comments on a page. And we also experimented with different ways of expressing what level of feedback it is. Like we have those concepts of something what would stop the whole idea, like it's it's really big, or is it just a small thing what to change? So and if the feedback givers actually qualify this, then it becomes way easier to absorb. The other thing is what we what we also do is again more from a mechanical perspective, is if someone made the point already. There's no point in two or three other people hammering in the same point and just keep on piling on because then the point is already made and then you're not actually focusing anymore on the subject we spa or the idea with spa. You're actually starting to go a little bit more on the person, which is never the intent. It's always about the thing you spar about and never about the person who, who presents this. And again, from a mental perspective, it's it's this constant self-reminding that it's about the the thing what I'm building, but it's not me as a person. And this is not easy, but it's the more often you do it, the better you get as pretty much with everything what, what we do.
0: Yeah, I like this idea that there are rules of the road and sort of best practices both for presenter as well as for feedback giver. And that in order to make it a productive sparring session, everybody has to kind of come in with a prepared mind knowing what is my role? What should my psychology be? How do I give the right amount of feedback, but not pile on and, and all the rest? And, and it's really important to to view it not as this nonchalant kind of casual thing where I just sort of, you know, vent about my initial reactions to, to something that's presented to me, but you really go in and you're really engaged and you're really thoughtful about it. And that's what leads to, you know, the, the productive output. So
1: Yes. And it's, there's an interesting thing, is especially when (laughs) earlier, when you're not kind of like, and it's still a bit uncomfortable, you do this. Very often you get like-minded people because you want to hear the good things about your stuff. It's actually important that you invite a diverse range of people. And early on, we mostly had designers, but over time, engineers showed up, PMs showed up, and it was actually really good because it helped them to understand better kind of like how an idea is formed. On the other hand, you actually get different perspectives in. So one of the pitfalls is actually getting too many like-minded people in there. And then you hear all the good stuff. And then you think, oh, it was really successful because I got so much good feedback. I'm usually very (laughs) doubtful or questionable. If it feels too good, I I usually challenge myself that something might be
0: fishy. It's funny. There's actually an often referenced trend and dynamic in venture capital, which is if every single person inside a firm is enthusiastic about a company when you make the investment, probably it's a chance or it's a good signal that it might not actually work. <laughs> the yeah. ones that are the correlated with the the best outcomes are the ones that oftentimes are the most controversial when you make the investment. You know, half the room thinks it's the 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 next big company and the other half of the room thinks it's a terrible idea. And usually those are the best investments versus the ones that everybody is, you know, cheering about. Yes, and it's
1: uh, the same is true for design. I can recall, like many years ago, there was an article around this, and we actually quickly debated this. It's sometimes the sparring actually might not go that well, and you still go ahead, <laughs> and that's again this this takes conviction and 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 confidence of of the designer or the person who shares something. But and this is okay because the whole thing is not about trying to get groupthink or consensus, consensus kind of like decisions. Like this is usually those are usually the worst design decisions. It, I think it's very similar.
0: So shifting gears to the last question in closing here, wanted to talk a little bit about post-COVID, certainly everybody's favorite topic right now, but I've heard you refer to it as the the next normal as opposed to the new normal, uh, which I really like. So one of the things you've talked about there is the idea of finite versus infinite mindsets. And so curious to, to think, how does that play into the next normal?
1: So how we think about it or how I think about it is COVID was a massive catalyst of (laughs) helping us understand that work can work in a different way. When you look back from a history perspective, it's kind of like work was mostly geared for production, kind of like the the, the people kind of like producing something very factory-orientated kind of like over the last few hundred years. But the workforce actually changed (laughs) over the last few decades, and it's way more knowledge work. But we still have similar patterns of going into work, coming back nine to five, and COVID was this catalyst who, which made us realize, no, there is actually another way of how it could work and how this and gives us way more flexibility. Now this kind of like demands that we actually curious and open, and we need kind of like to uh, embrace those new things. And this is kind of like now to your point, kind of like finite versus infinite. There is pretty much when you when you look at finite games or mindsets, it's something with very strong rule base, like a, uh, a football or a soccer game. You know kind of like the rules, and then you play the thing, and at the end, someone is a winner. Most of the things, many things in the world work like this. Like it's most sport games, war, very often also business, like you compete with someone else kind of like, and you want to be the winner. And then when you contrast this with infinite games or infinite thinking, it's all about playing the game and advancing the game and it's not about competition like the rules are not that clear and it's it's about inviting others to the game and 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 constantly improving yourself and and trying to to make something better and what's interesting there is you you basically constantly strive for being a better version of yourself being a better version of society and it's not about beating someone else. And this is a different approach of, of looking at the world, way more long-term focused, way more focused on one but one is three and not everything is a zero-sum game. Like if I take this, then you can't have it. And I believe that the next normal, we need more of this. And it's, it's like pulling together as a, as a society to solve the biggest challenges, <laughs> for us as a society, not for
0: my company is better than your company kind of way. So one of the quotes that I love that I heard from you is that being human will be our superpower, not our weakness in the next normal. What does that mean? So
1: when you, like, I believe superpower of humans is around curiosity, creativity, empathy, caring for others. And when you Look about the skills what are needed in the future. And the World Economic Forum actually just ran a study kind of like on the skills what are needed in 2025. It's all about analytical thinking and innovation, complex problem solving, creativity. In the past, you very often kind of like showed up to work and then you were expected to leave your personality and all yourself kind of like at home and. You just kind of get your tasks done and work through. And then at five or whenever you leave, you go home and, and switch over. But that's not how lives and work really work. And I believe that being able to actually bring your full self there and share in what state you are with your colleagues allows you to be way more curious invite people help them open up you get way more diverse perspective you get different points of view because there's a reality like and especially like COVID and kind of like the next normal taught us this is sometimes I have a hard time juggling my kids or dropping them off at school or with homeschooling and then you show up in a meeting and you might actually do a quick check like we actually do this now like hey how are you doing and people started to talk more openly about this stuff. And this then helps others, inviting them to participate in whatever state of mind they are. And I believe working in this kind of way will help us find better solutions and better solutions for the challenges what we have at hand than looking at everything in such a, I'd say, almost robotic or archaic way that no We actually don't care about all the stuff that's going on in the world. Just act professional. I believe that this will go away and we will learn to be more vulnerable so that we can take the full power each one of us brings. And this is this, just being human, being who you are.
0: I like that a lot because the term work-life integration was something prior to COVID, but... I think everybody had this question of, what exactly does that mean? And then, you know, in the last year, we've all seen that work and personal is merged together and we're sitting there on Zoom in our house, you know, 24-7, and so you can't avoid that. But it's not just the logistics of work and personal life that are integrated now. It's so much more than that, that bringing your full self, being vulnerable, being human in work and at, at home is incredibly important. So. Jürgen, thank you so much for spending time with us here on the Build podcast today. This was a fantastic conversation.
1: Thank you. Thanks again for having me. It was great chatting and sharing some of the thoughts.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Build. If you like what you've heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to stay up to date with all the new episodes. Follow me, Blake Bartlett, on LinkedIn to join in on the conversation and let me know what you think about the show. Join me this season on Build as we look into the brilliant minds scaling Slack, Notion, Atlassian, and more to discover what it takes to build an awesome product and achieve hypergrowth across every stage of maturity. From seed to IPO and beyond. Now, if you're ready, let's build this together. See you next time here on Build.